Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Today, we have with us an extremely special guest. He is the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Benson Group, a wealth management firm managing over $3 billion in client assets. He is consistently named as one of the top financial advisors in America by Barron's, Forbes, and the Financial Times. He's a frequent guest on CNBC, Bloomberg, and Fox Business, and is a regular contributor to the National Review and Forbes, as well as a best-selling author. It is truly my honor to welcome to the show, David Benson. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us a bit about your background, your work at the Benson Group, and your latest book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Well, I um, started the Bonson Group uh, in my initial experiences on Wall Street. I worked at a firm called Payne Weber that got acquired by UBS and built out a solo practice at UBS and ended up getting recruited away to Morgan Stanley, which was obviously one of the the largest uh, Wall Street firms. And at Morgan Stanley, I uh, the business grew significantly. And um, I became a managing director at the firm, uh, but my heart was really in my own PL, which was the Bonson Group. And we were one of their larger teams in the entire company. Um, but I reached a point where uh, I felt that the world of independence desperately needed a look. I was very entrepreneurial, had a, a personality that didn't like um, any kind of rules or <laughs> being controlled by any sort of central authority. And I became very morally committed to the fiduciary standard, which is the standard that uh, the independent advisory world works under, that we are legal fiduciaries um, for our clients, whereas the large firms basically function as uh, securities representatives. They they do not have the same uh, fiduciary requirements and and transparency and alignment of interest and other things like that. So the Bonson Group was born in 2014 as its own entity. And since then, we've grown another 500% and still growing rapidly. We now have 37 employees and four offices and um, hundreds of clients representing getting close to $3.5 billion. So that's our story. Okay. And can you tell us a bit about your latest book? So uh, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths is meant to be a sort of daily economic devotional. Um, uh, we, we, uh, we really did. Um, to me, there is a lot of economic uh, viewpoint out there right now that is troublesome, and it is not limited to just one political side of the aisle. I think that there is an increasing amount of people I happen to identify as right wing and very conservative politically. Um, and yet I believe there's more and more even on the right that are taking economic views that might kind of vary from some of the principles and foundational views that have been integral to classical economics for a long time. I think the reason is that there's a lot of instinct, a lot of impulse that comes with one aligning with the free enterprise vision of economics. But sometimes that impulse or instinct is not properly coupled to a good understanding, a little more depth, a little more nuance. And that's what the book was written for. Not so much to persuade 
socialists to become capitalist. I would love that. I don't think it will happen much, but it was more to give tools to equip people who have that free market impulse to have a better depth and understanding as to why we believe what we believe. So in the book, one of the primary things you talk about is a large scale social transition towards a collectivist ideology at the expense of free markets and economic freedom. We see this, especially with the new generation, with, I think, something like 74 percent of millennials saying that they would vote for a socialist. Um, So what do you think is the driving force behind this trend, especially um, in the younger generations? Well, I have two working theses uh, thesis on this that I've been uh, dealing with for quite some time. Um, one of them is a pretty short answer and one's a longer one. I'll elaborate for you. Uh, first and foremost, I don't really believe that younger people are falling in love with socialism. I believe that they're answering that way because they've fallen out of love with capitalism. I think that there's something about the world of free markets that has been uh, quite um, distasteful to them. And so they default to the other side of the pendulum. It's swinging the other way in their ideology, not because of anything that they find attractive in it, but because of what they find repugnant in the other side. Um, now, it may amount to the same thing for a lot of people, but I happen to believe there's a great lesson in that. And I know that uh, we're going to talk about crony capitalism, cronyism later, which I think we'll find is really at the essence of what people find distasteful about free markets. They're wrongly identifying the problem, but understandably so. But then if if we want a more um, cultural context around this question and answer, I think it's important to think about um, people that right now would be 30 years old, that were in their late teen years when the financial crisis happened. They got out of college at some point, uh, uh, maybe 10 years ago, five years ago. Um, And so when you look at people that are in between the ages of 25 and 35, their entrance into adulthood started with the financial crisis, started with maybe their mom and dad losing their house or having anxiety about losing their house or seeing a lot of friends that were caught up in a housing boom that blew up. and then themselves getting sold a bill of goods about the value of their college education, struggling with a gainful wage, uh, coming out of college, oftentimes just going to jobs that even friends of theirs who did not have college degrees had to take, um, and doing so with a significant amount of student debt that cuts into their monthly disposable income. Maybe they've worked hard and done well and gotten a pretty good job, And yet the reward for that good job is they still can't afford to buy a decent house because of the state of housing prices, uh, the amount that rents have moved up over the last 5, 10, 15 years. So their entrance into economic society has been basically one of unfortunate events and circumstances around the great financial crisis, around real GDP growth that is half of what it has been for the last 50 years and the most Gen Xers like myself and baby boomers like my parents' generation has uh, has seen. And um, doing so with a student debt that has been, I believe, one of the greatest frauds in the history of, hum- of mankind. So that I think is the cultural context for a lot of people's hatred of free enterprise. I don't think um, that it is ir- ir- irresolvable. Quite the contrary. I think that most of what um, 
is needed here is a better framework for understanding why their angst, which is legitimate, is actually worsened by the forces of collectivism and socialism. And then, in fact, a, a truer form of free enterprise would serve us all quite well, not uh, any version of crony capitalism or central planning, which is actually behind a lot of the cultural epidemics that plague them. And that, that certainly is interesting because a, a lot of the issues that you mentioned um, are not so much an issue with free markets, but rather an issue with government intervention in the market. So, for example, the, the student loan crisis, which has trapped a countless amount of young people under massive loans, um, that's not that's not something that was brought on by the free market. Um, it, it was a government solution to, to a, a problem. That, that created even more uh, unintended problems. Um, same thing, I think, with the, the financial crisis. I mean, although that was, um, the, the banks played a, a large role in that, um, that was, I think, uh, a, a fault of um, uh, an oversight um, from regulatory um, agencies, many of whom were corrupt themselves, um, which again, I think links back to cronyism. So a lot of, a lot of what, um, many young people see as, as faults with the free market are actually faults of the government and their intervention into the market. Um, so would you agree with that? Oh, I'd agree wholeheartedly. And I'd emphatically want to make that point when people say we had an inadequate amount of regulation of a wild west free market. Um, and that's what caused the financial crisis. I say, well, what, what regulation was inadequate? The 301 different government agencies that were already assigned to the case, um, the 27,000 pages of various regulations that already existed in the mortgage world. What 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 part? And, and I think ultimately, when you can get down to the heart of the matter, see the way in which government intervention exacerbated the crisis, both with housing policy, social policy, legislative policy, regulatory policy, monetary policy. You can get to a lot of the heart of the matter that sees in this particular crisis, government as a big part of the problem, not, not any part of a solution. Um, I also do believe, and I wrote my very first book on this subject, Crisis of Responsibility, that we have to resist the narrative that says Wall Street was the bad guy and Main Street was the good guy that really everybody was acting like a bad guy. There was greed and irresponsibility that was run amok in Wall Street and on Main Street. And that this narrative morally, that people who took on the risk of buying four houses without any down payments and lied on mortgage apps and thought they could just flip all the homes with no risk and then got caught upside down. And that these people were all victims or people that um, walked away from their loans, even though they still had assets and still had income. And yet, just because the house was upside down, figured, well, if it were heads and I had won, that's one thing. But now that it's tails and I lost, I'm out. Those so-called strategic defaults. Um, the, the, you know, We have to properly understand the role everyone played. Now, I don't want to defend a lot of the bad actors on Wall Street. Um, but I also don't want to give a Pollyannish view of Main Street either. So the financial crisis had a lot of bad actors. And my view of it is, well, what could have avoided the crisis? The principles I talk about in the book or more of what we had before? I think that the principles of virtuous free society would have 
truly avoided even the possibility of a financial crisis. And, and so I think that that's an argument that young people are open to if you can engage in those terms. When you refer to the modern uh, context where people um, you know, look at the different problems and you bring up the student loan example, um, I think that this is a basic economic principle. When you subsidize something, do you get more of it or less of it? So what we've done is we've given college administrators a blank check to charge whatever they want in tuition because we've separated the buyer from the payer. The person getting the services is not the one paying for them. And so there is a lack of market accountability in the delivery of higher education. And it has given people the ability, college administrators, to run up their um, bureaucracy, their infrastructure, their, their red tape at cost to you know, administer these colleges, their vanity projects with real estate on campus, and yet delivering now uh, uh, undergrad education that costs two and a half times what it used to when wages have barely moved up at all for graduates at many other institutions. So beyond like the kind of top five to 10 elite universities in the country, for the most part, none of them have any value added relative to what their prior price structure was in professional, let alone personal development. And I actually anecdotally would say it's personal non-development because all they're teaching people to do is party for four years. But regardless, how did this come about? Well, the government monopolizing the student loan market, the lack of creative, entrepreneurial, free market innovations in how college gets funded, the lack of, again, connection between the payer and the user of the services. So non-market forces created the problems. Market forces ought to be the solution. All right. Um, so both in the book and in your prior work, you talk a lot about the impacts of cronyism on society and on the economy at large. Often the central challenge with addressing cronyism is that it's so deep rooted within the political tradition that many argue that it is almost impossible to curtail without tearing down the legislative branch entirely. So could you please tell us a bit more about what um, you think cronyism actually is and how it affects Americans and as well as what can be done about it? Well, cronyism is the bi-directional attempt for um, government and a particular favored business um, to benefit one another. And so whether it is the businessman seeking out the government process to, to stifle competition, to give them a leg up, to give them an unfair advantage, um, to give them a path to, to a particular revenue that other companies do not get, or it is the government setting policies and framework and putting their hands or fingers on the scale, regardless, it is cronyist, it is nefarious. And of course, there's only one possible solution, and that is to limit the overall size of government so that they have less capacity for putting their fingers on the scales. So cronyism is a unfortunate part of human nature um, where companies that develop size and scale then have the resources with lawyers, accountants, and lobbyists to try to use the power of the state as an advantage to their business endeavors, not a hurdle. And that sub regulation is a subsidy 
They, they effectively um, know that they have greater resources to deal with regulation versus smaller companies that have less resources, less lobbyists, less uh, lawyers and so forth. And, and so cronyism takes on a lot of different shapes and sizes. And I believe that most critiques I hear about free markets are not critiques of free markets. They're critiques of unfree markets. So the entire chapter that I devoted to cronyism is hopefully filled with useful insights as to how the objectives of the cronyist are evil and how strategically the um, objectives of the cronyist can be defeated. So an interesting example I, I heard about recently um, was Amazon um, was lobbying hard in Washington for a $15 minimum wage. Um, they pulled their uh, minimum wage for all their employees up to $15, and they went to Washington to try and campaign for a $15 minimum wage. So they look, um, it, it's it's an extremely good PR campaign for them because, you know, they look like a good guy here. They're fighting for workers' rights um, all over the country. But instead, what, um, what, what many people don't see is that um, that on its own is a tactic of crushing a lot of the smaller businesses that, that form their competition. Because whilst a company like Amazon has the resources to, to pay all of their employees um, $15 an hour, a lot of smaller businesses don't have those same kinds kinds of resources. Now, um, as someone familiar with economics, um, you'll know the the role that the minimum wage actually plays in the economy. So, an employee an, an employer can't can't pay their employee more than um, fifteen dollars or fifteen dollars an hour if the employer doesn't feel that they're making at least that much money from their employee. So, um, either they'll pay them less than the fifteen dollars, or if they are mandated to pay them fifteen dollars or above, they'll have to get rid of the employee altogether. So um, it's it's not so much a, a humanitarian issue like many many make it seem, um, and so they they go to Washington and they campaign for a fifteen dollar minimum wage across the country. Now all of a sudden this puts a lot of pressure on small mom and pop businesses, especially in small rural towns where fifteen dollars means a lot more than it does in say New York City, and uh, and so now they can afford to get rid of their competition and look like the good guy at the same time um, in Washington. So I think that's that's one of the most prominent examples of, of cronyism that I've heard about. Is, does that sound like um, something similar to the issue that you were talking about? Well, very much so. But I mean, that's one example. There are so many more that are in the exact same vein. Um, I would add, by the way, it is not just that Amazon can afford the $15 minimum wage and other smaller companies cannot. And so they're using the power of legislator to try to elbow out competition once they already have been paying, you know, they climbed to the top of the ladder paying $8 an hour. Now they got up there and they want everyone to have to pay 15 an hour. Those are, that's a great example. It's low hanging fruit, but by the way, they won't even have to be at Amazon's level, you know, going and doing all the $15 an hour hires that their competitors can't afford because they are in a position they can kiosk people, they can automate, they have a far more productive capacity, all of which is a good thing. But the point is they won't even end up paying more in wages because they'll be able to have more productivity from less people. So with the higher wage level that stifles their competition, it won't even impact them financially, let alone the fact that they could um, handle the impact further, which was your point. But I would look to Exxon's support of the carbon tax. I would look to Facebook calling for more regulation of social media. Um, uh, I would look to the way a lot of the big tobacco companies embraced higher taxes on cigarettes after the uh, initial rulings. 
um, that knowing that the higher tax price <clears throat> would hurt their competitors more than them who had more established brands. But those are all big, big, big companies and really obvious examples. Um, I could go on and on with more niche, nuanced, you know, specific cases that, that may be less obvious to some, but they all have the same thing in common, as you've pointed out, which is the government being used as a tool to help a business and hurt another. And it's anti-competitive and it's anti-market, it's anti-enterprise. I would add this entire thing applies to full sectors, full social agendas as well. The greatest crony capitalist perversion in history was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, where they didn't even change the nomenclature. They didn't even change the vocabulary. They defined it as a government-sponsored enterprise. Well, I don't know what that meant because it was stockholders, it was CEOs, uh, it was regular uh, gains to private citizens. And when the company mismanaged itself into the greatest capital hole in human history, the losses were socialized. And that was embedded in the very structure of this atrocity. And so I believe that history is not kind to these types of things. Um, when government feels really strongly about solar energy or electric vehicles, I think that's fine. They can have strong opinions. People can like it. Consumers can vote with their pocketbook. But when government policy then decides to go favor one particular consumer or social preference, it's cronyist, period. Okay. So in addition to your work as an author and writer in the field of economics, you're also a world-renowned financial advisor managing billions of dollars in clan assets. So Social Security has made headlines recently with the Social Security Administration forecasting insolvency if funds are not increased substantially. In light of this, is there any advice you can give to some of our younger listeners on steps that they can take to invest and build wealth to ensure that they can retire comfortably, especially in the absence of Social Security? Um, so, so to help me get to the bottom of the question, um, more, basically... Um, are you looking for some type of, well, maybe restate the question for me as just kind of a bottom line, what you're looking for. Okay. So uh, a lot of people relied on social security um, as, as their, their um, plan for their, their financial plan for retirement. So, um, you know, they pay into social security all their life. They think they're going to retire and okay. Um, they have yeah. social security. They don't need to do anything more. So now that young people see the threat that social security may not be there by the time that they retire, what can they do um, right now um, to, to ensure that they build wealth? So, I mean, obviously you manage your own investment firm. Um, you've been in the investment game, Morgan Stanley, all your life. So I'm just trying to get some advice that you've maybe picked up along the way, some things that you've learned and um, that you can pass on to our viewers for how they can invest properly and how they can you know, find the right people and where, where they can be putting their money. Well, I, I mean, it is an incredibly important question, and I think that there are, are two uh, directions I want to take it. First is the premise around the Social Security not being there. I don't know if it'll be there or not. I mean, the reality is politicians have plenty of ways to plug the hole and keep uh, a kind of legalized pyramid scheme going. And a lot of people have been predicting the insolvency of Social Security for a long time. And, and the fact that Social Security is not insolvent doesn't mean that the system has done well or worked. It's just that they have very creative ways of being able to change the numbers, to borrow more in the trust fund, 
to um, run larger deficits, to uh, you know, manipulate the system to keep the money coming. And politically, I, I don't, it's hard for me to picture a scenario where they don't keep doing that. They call it the third rail in American politics for a reason. And so maybe young people will have access to Social Security in the future. Maybe they won't. Um, but I don't want to, to put as the foundation of my argument for financial management and prudence and security and wisdom uh, fear of the social safety net working out. Because if the social safety net does work out, you, someone may have the equivalent of $24,000 a year, you know, which would be poverty line. Um, they, the, the fact of the matter is that even social security was always meant to be sort of a supplement, um, not a full wage, and certainly not the type of luxury or abundance or comfort um, that a good investor could create for themselves. Uh, you want people to have at the end of their life a certain financial security uh, that allows them to still be productive if they want to still be productive, which is what I hope for most people. I hate the idea of a 30-year vacation being the definition of retirement. But even apart from that, the legacy they want to leave their children and grandchildren, the things they want to do charitably, philanthropically. So Social Security is not going to do any of that if everything works perfectly. In the best case scenario, it can't provide that kind of abundance that ought to be at the at the um, you know heart of our our underlying aspiration economically. So, how do young people go about setting themselves on the right path path economically? It's the same way since time eternal, and that is that you build wealth by producing more than you consume. You build wealth by producing more than you consume. And if you produce X and you consume a little less than X. You have wealth. And then if you do that a lot and a lot of time goes by, you compound wealth because time is the, is the, is the friend of wealth creation. And through wise investment, you can enhance that compounding as well. But even apart from what great investment is going to make 9% versus another investment is going to make 6%, whatever, just merely the concept of producing more than you consume and time equals all anyone needs to know towards tremendous financial security. Then you get into the weeds about why one investment strategy may be better than another. That's great. But the ABCs are the easier part. And yet they're the part that keep most people from appropriately building wealth. Okay. Um, now, um, additionally, I mean, um, also in the world of finance, a hot button issue at the moment that I'm sure many of our listeners would love your take on is the cryptocurrency boom. So with Bitcoin going through the roof, many are afraid to miss out, but aren't too sure of the risks involved. So as such, I wanted to ask about your opinion on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, whether there's something that you would recommend as part of an investment portfolio and where you see them headed in the future. Well, I uh, probably will not make everyone happy with my answer here, but I believe it with every ounce of breath in my body. Um, to the extent one is buying Bitcoin for the purpose of selling it at a higher price or buying something else with it at a higher price. In other words, trying to play the appreciation of the digital currency value. Um, I do believe it is a bubble that will blow up in their face. And if it is not at this price proved to be a bubble, the risk of that is such that it makes it incredibly unattractive. Um, there are far, 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 far too many speculators for this to end well. 
far too many people that have bought it for the only reason that it has gone up in the last year and a half. And they don't know why, and they don't care why. They just want to buy something that is going higher. Those things never end well. But it is not connected to any fundamental economic value. There is no intrinsic value, or I should say internal rate of return. There's no earnings stream or coupon. So then people say, yeah, but it's a currency. It can be used as a form of currency. And if that's the case, that's fine. If one wants to use it to transact, however, the ideal environment for currency is not one going way up in value or way down in value. It's non-volatility. You want a stable medium of exchange. Bitcoin sometimes goes down 20% in three days because of a tweet from Elon Musk. So it is not a stable medium of exchange. Um, there is a avalanche of government scrutiny and regulation coming in that is going to absolutely shock people. Um, and it is highly volatile and risky to be buying for speculative purposes. Uh, will we all end up using digital currency one day? Um, I, if, if we are, it's a technological medium, not as a, a value. There cannot be a store of value in, in that context. And, and to the extent that people think that will circumvent government, they will find out, unfortunately, how he with the most guns wins. And so, no, I don't think that the Treasury Department, State Department, um, and various regulatory bodies will allow Bitcoin to disintermediate the United States financial system. And therefore, I think even its utility is somewhat uh, questionable to me. Now, that's not to say I don't believe that there'll be more digital currency. I think there will be more techno technologization of financial transactions. But that is a totally separate matter from what the value of the medium ends up being. And I find this right now to be totally divorced from reality and rationality. I think a lot of people passionately disagree with me on that, and I'm okay. And they should be okay too, because if they're so sure it's going to keep going higher and higher, they have nothing to worry about with my crazy opinion. But for those who just don't know, I just would uh, simply put out my perspective that um, this level of euphoric bubble-like condition has not exactly uh, never been seen before. And when it has been seen before, it's not ended well. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today, David. Um, once again, I'd like to thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you to everyone for listening to the Economics Review. As always, we'll be back soon with the latest.